Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. All right, let's have our Bible reading now. So we're looking at Romans 9 today. So if you turn to Romans 9 with me, and or you can just follow along on the screen or in the Bibles on the aisles. Feel free to grab that and keep it if you don't have one. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Those are my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God all over, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated, At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were convinced at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who, is, who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out the same lump of clay, some pottery for special purposes, and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the, Gal- uh, the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the numbers of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, he would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. Thank you, Adam. 
There's a lot in there for sure. Today is a wonderful day. As it's already been mentioned, we're having baptisms this morning. And I love baptism services above all other services at church because we get to hear testimonies of people who have not only given their life to the Lord, but also growing in their faith and maturing in their faith and are ready to stand up and declare their love for Jesus before God, before their friends and their family. So it should be a wonderful day. So today we're going to hear a little bit later from Fred Lopez, Mike Cosgrove and Liam Bilson, which will be absolutely wonderful. However, the date of this baptism service has changed along the way. And we never intended to be looking at Romans chapter 9 today. We're going through a series uh, through the book of Romans and we happen to be up to chapter 9. And on baptism days we try and keep it a little bit shorter and a little bit lighter for the visitors. But today as we flip over the page into Romans 9, we come across two of the most hotly debated topics right throughout the history of Christianity. And today in this chapter Paul addresses them both head on. Uh, These two topics we see in the passage today. Uh, The first topic is the nation of Israel. Um, Where do they fit in God's plans in the past, in the present, and in the future? Uh, This issue causes a lot of debate and conflict, not just within Christianity, of course, but also within world politics. And so we're going to address it from the Bible over the next few weeks. The second topic is a much lighter topic. It's a light topic of predestination. (laughs) Does God predetermine those who will be saved, and does he also predetermine those who won't? This, of course, brings up a whole lot of questions about fairness, justice, love, and the character of God. This was not our plan for today at our baptism service, but if you're a Calvinist, you'll know this was predestined to happen. (laughs) There's nothing we could do about it, so we just got to get on with it, right? If you're an Arminian, you'll say it's clearly our fault because we decided by our free will to change the date of the baptism, so now we need to deal with the consequences. If you don't have a clue what a Calvinist or an Arminian is, then you're probably visiting for the baptisms or you're a new Christian and you'll either fall asleep during this message or you'll leave learning something new and I'm praying for the second one. Today I'm going to sit on the fence when it comes to Calvinism and Arminianism, not in my belief but in my method of dealing with this chapter. I'm predestined to do this passage today, I agree with that. But by my own free will, I'm going to park the Israel discussion for next week and beyond and hone in today on the predestination issue. We've got 30 minutes this morning to attempt some answers on this issue from today's text, which the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 25 weeks on. So please start praying for a miracle this morning. Now, before we start, I want to give a couple of words of warning before we launch into the next few weeks. I think it's important to do that. Um, and I want you to listen carefully to this. This will save you sending me an angry letter or leaving the church. And so it's very important that you listen up. There is no doubt that we won't all be in agreement when it comes to these two issues over the next few weeks. And so I want to make clear a couple of things. Number one, I want to make it clear that when it comes to faith, these two issues are secondary matters, not primary matters. So in other words, you can be a Christian and have various views on the nation of Israel. You can be a Christian and you can be a Calvinist or you can be an Arminian and you're still a Christian. There are some issues in Christianity uh, that you have to believe or else you're not a Christian. Things like Jesus lived and died and rose again and he's coming back. They are primary uh, concerns in the Christian faith. They are primary matters. These two issues are not in that category. They are important but they are not primary to our salvation. They are secondary. So we go to scripture in matters like this and we keep exploring and we keep wrestling and we keep maturing in our faith. And so Israel and predestination will be a source of debate, but they should never ever be a source of division in a church like this because over and above our debates, we love one another. We are gracious, we are humble, we are kind, 
And Jesus said, people will know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. And so as the Apostle Peter said in his first letter, above all else, love each other deeply. Please keep those words in your mind and in your heart over the next few weeks. The second word of warning is this. Don't become so fixated on these issues that they distract you from the mission God has called you to. I think a lot of people become so obsessed, particularly with end times theology, that it's all they ever study. They can tell you everything that is going to happen with Israel. They can guess when Jesus is coming back, even though Jesus himself doesn't know. There are others that can tell you all the ins and outs of Arminianism. They can give you the five points of Kelvin off by heart. And yet they don't know the name of the next door neighbour. They've never shared the gospel, the good news with anybody. They're not growing to become more Christ-like in their lives. And let me tell you, that's a bigger issue. And so I want to encourage you all at the start of this three-chapter mini-series in the book of Romans to continue to learn, grow, wrestle and mature, but don't allow it to distract you from what God is calling you and us to do as the people of God. And so today, that's the words of warning out of the way, and we're going to dive into this exciting issue of predestination. And I actually mean that when I say it. I think if we can understand this, it can give us great confidence in our faith. Does God predestine every part of our lives like an author who has written our story and placed us within it, but because it's written, we simply follow the script? Or do we have free will to make our own decisions, to write our own story? More importantly, when it comes to eternal life, does God predetermine those who will be saved and those who won't? When it comes to predestination, there are two main camps, two main sort of classical views on predestination at either end of the spectrum. At one end, you've got the view called Calvinism. Now, Calvinism, uh, that's one view, and then you've got Arminianism at the other end. So let's start with Calvinism. Calvinism is the view that elevates the sovereignty of God. In other words, God is in complete control of our lives and of human history, and he will do everything according to his will. Within that big plan, the only way we could ever possibly be a Christian is if God works in our lives to actively save us. It's not about human free will or about our own decisions. To be saved is entirely an act of God. He doesn't depend on, nor is he dictated to, by, our, by what we decide to do. God is not controlled by our will or by our decision-making. He predestines us according to his good pleasure. And so before we even exist, God has predestined us to be his people. Now, there's an extreme edge of Calvinism. It's often known as hyper-Calvinism, um, double predestination. And that is the view that was held by John Calvin, the author of Calvinism, that God not only predestines some people to heaven, but he also predestines some people to hell. Hyper-Calvinists will never really share the good news of Jesus with anyone because to them it won't make any difference anyway. And so there's the classical view of Calvinism. Then you've got the extreme edge of Calvinism. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got the Arminian view. The Arminian view is at the opposite end of the spectrum because it, elevate, it elevates human freedom and free will. And an Arminian would often say that we have to choose whether we will, we will, we will accept Christ or reject him. Arminians often claim that because God is outside of time and he knows what happens right throughout the human timeline of history, he already knows who's going to choose him and who's going to reject him. Therefore, he predestines people according to his foreknowledge of what their decision will be. So we feel this pressure as Christians to align ourselves in, in one camp or the other. Either I'm, a, either I'm a Calvinist or I'm an Arminian and we feel this pressure. But I want to just remind us at the start of this message that both of those views are actually man-made constructs. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about John Calvin. It doesn't use the term Arminianism either. So instead of feeling the pressure to choose one or the other, I think we need to come back to Scripture and actually wrestle together on these things. And so I'm going to put my cards on the table from the start where my view is on this. I would say I'm closer to the Calvinist point of view than I am to the Arminian view. Certainly not the hyper-Calvinist view, but the classical Calvinist view. In other words, I absolutely believe that God predestines us according to his will. But at the same time, I also believe there's an element of human responsibility in the mix. This is why we are held to account if we reject Jesus. And so where is the line on all this? Where is the line between God's sovereignty and human responsibility? Here's a really um, technical answer. I don't know. And I'm really glad about that. I love the fact that my faith has an element of mystery. That's why it's faith. There's parts of God that my puny brain will never fully comprehend this side of eternity. And so I've got to trust God in the mystery, knowing that he's always good. And so we've got to trust God. There's an element of mystery between God's sovereignty and human responsibility when it comes to predestination. And so I think if we could box God up and say, well, I completely understand everything about God now, I think he would then cease to be God. I think we would be God because we would be bigger than him. And so there's elements of God that we will just never fully comprehend. And I think that's a really good thing. And I even think in eternity, we'll still be learning new and wondrous things about God all the time because he's just beyond us. He's incredible. And so let's keep that in mind as we look at this today. As we continually grapple with the mystery of sovereignty and human responsibility, I think it helps us to trust God completely. He is sovereign. But at the same time, it causes us not to abandon our mission to share the good news with everyone we possibly can. So I encourage you from Scripture to come to your own view on whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian or anywhere in between those two views. But as you learn more about that today, I want to give you three main factors to keep in mind as we consider predestination. The first factor is this. We need to remember God's sovereignty. I love that Calvinism actually highlights the sovereignty of God. I believe from Scripture that God is all-powerful, He is all-knowing, He is ever-present, and He's completely in control. I believe that He created this world, He holds it in the palm of His hand, and He sustains it by His mighty word. God is completely in control of creation. And I think the sovereignty of God is an amazing doctrine because it gives us great confidence and security in life that we have an amazing God that we can trust in our faith, and He's the God that we worship. I wouldn't want to follow a God who is not completely in control. Can you imagine? Sorry, it would be hard to have faith in a God like that, I think. You know, I think a God where we're crossing our fingers all the time and going, gee, I hope God's in control. I hope he can do what he's promised. I don't think that's really a God worth following. I'm so happy and so glad that we have a God who actually knows what he's doing. I'm so glad that God's plan is not dependent on you and it's not dependent on me and it's not dependent on the decisions we make. Can you imagine if God was in heaven and he was coming up with a plan for humanity and he's excited about it. So he's God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're, they're sitting around a big board table and they're talking about this great plan for humanity. And they're, they're excited about it and they've decided on it. And they go, this is amazing. And they put a, a big rubber stamp on it. So we're going to stamp this off. And we're going to say, this is our will and our desire. This is our eternal plan. It looks brilliant. But imagine if they said this. Now, all we need for this plan to happen is for Luke Williams in Officer to always do perfectly what we need him to do for this eternal plan to happen. 
How would that affect your trust and confidence in God? I know what you probably say to my face. You probably say, it's all cool, Luke. You're our pastor. We trust you. We know that you've got this. But I know what you'd be thinking deep down. You'd be thinking this plan is doomed. Because if God's eternal plan is hinging on Luke Williams to do everything right all the time, then it's only a matter of time. It's inevitable before Luke stuffs this up. And so can you imagine if that was God's plan and it it hinged on me? Be quiet over there. I've lost my train of thought now. It's their fault, right? But it was predestined to happen. So can you imagine if... In that moment when I inevitably stuff up what is initially God's plan, can you imagine God in heaven looking down with wide eyes and this look of horror on his face, thinking, good grief, what on earth are we going to do now? I did not see that coming. What on earth are we literally going to do now to sort this out? Quick, Son, Holy Spirit, come back in here. We need to scribble down a plan B and a plan C and D and E and F because we did not see this happening. We're in big trouble. We're overwhelmed because Luke has stuffed this thing up. We're going to troubleshoot this mess. Let me tell you, that's not a God worth following. That's us. We don't need a God like us. We need a God who's greater than us. And so God's sovereignty actually brings amazing security and confidence in our life. God is in control of everything. Right throughout human history and all eternity. When it comes to salvation, he has chosen us, he has elected us, he has predestined us in Christ to be his people and his will will come to pass. When I think of that, I think, wow, that we would be adopted by God. Despite the fact that we don't earn it, that we don't deserve it, that God would choose us anyway. That is an incredible thing to think that I can't stuff this up because God's chosen me. What security comes from believing that God's in control, God is sovereign. He's not dependent on us. He's not changed by our decisions. He sees the beginning from the end. And we can read the story that's been written down for us. We know how it ends. How do we know how it ends? Because God is sovereign. If he wasn't sovereign, this wouldn't be his word. We would be hoping this happens, but we would have no confidence. But the fact that God is all-powerful, the fact that God is in control, we know the future. The future is amazing for those that are in Christ. And we know that it's guaranteed because God is God. We have a God who we can trust because he's completely and absolutely in control. And no matter who comes against him and no matter who comes against us, this is plan A and plan A will come to pass because we have a God who's sovereign. Does God have a plan B? No, he doesn't. Why? Because he doesn't need one. And so the sovereignty of God is something we need to remember when we think about predestination. So let's park the sovereignty of God over there for a moment and let's talk about us. Because at the same time God is sovereign, he also didn't create robots who have no intellect, no ability to make decisions, no choices in life. He hasn't programmed us to say, yes, sir, no, sir, when he asks us questions. He doesn't program us to have to love him. He's a God that has created us to be highly intelligent. As I look around this room, um, at least some of us have been created as highly intelligent. We're relational beings who can think and act and respond. And ultimately, all of us are held responsible for our receiving or our rejecting of Christ. This is where the mystery of sovereignty and human responsibility is held in tension. Now, because we like the idea of being in control and having free will to choose, we struggle with passages like this one in Romans chapter 9. If you look at verse 10, it talks about Rebecca, 
Her children were conceived at the same time by Isaac, yet before the twins were born, before they'd done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. How on earth can we get our head around this? How on earth could God choose Jacob and reject Esau before they were born? How could he say he loved one more than the other? Did Esau kick more in the womb and it ticked God off? Was Jacob more well-behaved in Rebekah's tummy? Did God know that Esau would be born a very hairy baby and he loves metrosexuals without hair? Sorry, Dad. No. This is talking about God's sovereignty. He chose Esau to serve Jacob. And so how could God choose before these innocent kids were even born? That's the question that goes straight to our minds. Straight away, the question becomes one of justice. Is that really fair? Paul wrote this letter thousands of years ago, but he preempts our question today. Verse 14, he says, What shall we say then? Is God unjust? And then he answers the question, Not at all. For he says, Moses, he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And so we've looked at the sovereignty of God, and we need to hold that there, but it doesn't answer the question of fairness. And so how do we decide whether what God does is fair, just, or right? Well, the second thing to consider, I think, when we think about predestination is God's character. And so we've considered God's sovereignty, that God is in control, but now we need to consider God's character. What is he really like? And I think that's what's on trial in this passage. Is God really a good God? We know from Scripture who God is. We know that God is perfect. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly fair. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly righteous in all his ways. In fact, Psalm 145 says, The Lord is righteous in all of his ways, and he's loving toward all he has made. He is kind, compassionate, and merciful. He is quick to forgive. He is slow to anger. His desire is that none should perish. God is love. This is why I can't embrace double predestination, that God predestines people to heaven, but even before they are born, some are predestined to hell. I just don't think that's in line with God's character. When I think about predestination, my overarching interpretive grid is the character of God. God is good and he will not act contrary to his nature. So when something doesn't seem fair or kind or just when it comes to God, the problem's not with God. The problem's with us and with our lack of understanding of God. From the time of Adam and Eve, we have constantly wanted to be like God. We have wanted to be the ones who have ultimate authority. We want to be control, in control of our own lives. That's why when I think about the Garden of Eden, the serpent actually tempted Adam and Eve um, and he said, if you eat this fruit, you will become like God. Now, what was that fruit? That fruit was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we wanted from the very start to decide what is right and what is wrong. And so much of the world now puts themselves on the throne. We, we sort of step ourselves up above God we put ourselves on the throne and we look down on God and we decide whether he is just or unjust, whether he is kind or unkind, whether he is right or wrong. And depending on the verdict that we declare over God, we choose whether we will receive or reject him. How many times in your childhood did you put your parents on the stand? 
and judge them based on your wants or desires. There are three words of judgment that we often hear from our kids, aren't there? Does anyone know what they are? It's not fair. It's not fair, is it? It's not fair that I can't run around on the roads. It's not fair that I can't have another ice cream. I want another ice cream. It's not fair that I can't play footy instead of going to church. It's not fair that I can't go to that party or have that expensive pair of shoes. It's not fair and it's not right because as a knowledgeable child, I know what I'm talking about and I'm doing the judging and the verdict that I've put down on you is that you are lousy parents because what you do is not fair. And I think that remains our worldview until when? Until we become parents or become adults. And we realise it's not that simple. We see it in our own kids then, don't we? And we start to hear the same accusations, the same complaint. It's not fair. But by this stage as parents, we realise that through experience and maturity and the mistakes that we have made, there are things that we can see that our kids just can't or don't want to understand. We know that we allow or don't allow certain things in the lives of our kids because we absolutely love them, because we want to protect them and because we want the very best for their lives. However, at the same time, they're convinced that we're doing these things to deliberately ruin their lives, to rob their joy, to steal their fun, because we are unjust and unreasonable, and we must be doing it because we've got absolutely nothing else to do in life (laughs) but make their life a misery. Now, we know that this is an immature posture that kids often have towards parents shaped by a lack of maturity and a lack of understanding. However, this is so often the posture that we have towards God. If you consider the gap between us and our parents and the the gap in wisdom and knowledge and understanding, now consider the gap between us and God and it's infinitely more. And so who are we to judge God? Who are we to say what's fair or not fair? Who are we to judge God on what he chooses to do? And so we look to God and we place him on the stand. And this is quite ironic really, isn't it? Us... One human being in a tiny part of Melbourne, in a tiny country, in a tiny world, in a tiny galaxy, in a a huge galaxy, a tiny little world, in a tiny time within history and through our immaturity and our pride and our lack of understanding, we want to judge the creator of the universe. How naive and how foolish can we be to think that the created creature could possibly judge the creator of the creature? Paul expresses this sentiment in verse 20. He says, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Some of you would know the story of Job in the Old Testament. Job was a righteous man. He was described as blameless and upright, and he was also described as a man who loved God. Now, if you know the story, the devil wanted to come and tempt Job to see if he lost everything, if he'd still hold on to God, and God allowed this to happen. And so Job went through a horrific time in his life. He lost his family, his friends, his possessions, his job, and eventually even his own physical health. After all the pain and tragedy Job went through, he couldn't wait for that moment where he could finally get his shot to tell God exactly what he thought about God's justice, that he was an unjust God, and he gives it to him, firing both barrels. God patiently listens to the judgments that Job declares upon him, and when he's finally finished, God has his turn to speak. And he says these words, "'Brace yourself, Job, like a man. I will question you, and you will answer.'" First question, Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? When you get that as your first question, you know that you're about to get put back in your box pretty quickly. 
That question was the first of 67 verses. God asked Job question after question. Who put the stars in the sky? Who keeps this thing all together? Who let the wild donkeys go free? Who satisfies the hunger of the lions? Who provides your food to eat? Who cares for everything in creation? And after 67 verses, Job's head is spinning and he realises, who am I to question God? And this is what he says. He says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I will put my hand over my mouth, which perhaps he should have done in the first place. He said, I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job again out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer. First question, and this is the crux of it. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? It's a pivotal question that was followed by another 50 verses of intense and humbling questioning from God to Job. Listen to Job's final conclusion in Job 42 verse 2. He says, God, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours could ever be thwarted. You asked, who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. I think... Job's conclusion was simply this, that God is God and we are not. And maybe in his wisdom, maybe just maybe he knows more than we do. And so when we consider God's actions, we know that he is always just. When we consider God's character and we remind ourselves of who he is, we will soon see that any lack of understanding is not an issue with God. It's an issue with us. And so it brings us back to the same realisation as Job, a place of trust and dependence that God is in control. But not only that, that God will never contradict his righteous character. In all that he does, he will always do what is right and just and good, even if we don't understand it at the time. So we consider the sovereignty of God. We consider the character of God. And finally, we turn the mirror around and we consider our own character. And I think we often have a default position that God owes us something. We often judge God's actions based on how we see our own character. We often see ourselves as good people who deserve God's blessing, but that's actually not what the Bible teaches. I think we've already addressed this in Romans several times, but we've talked about the problem of human sin, that we are all born with inherent sin, a sinful nature. In other words, if God just left us to our own devices, we'll never choose him. We'll always gravitate towards sin and away from God. That's our nature. We don't like to think of ourselves that way. But look at a toddler. Look at a teenager. Look at a parent. Look at an adult. Look at a senior. And most importantly, look in the mirror. And we know deep down this is true. All of us have walked away and rejected God. We've said in our hearts, we don't need you, God. We don't want you in our lives. We want to be our own God. And so left to ourselves... We won't ever pursue God. This is what Romans 3 taught us. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I think that describes people who have hardened their hearts towards God. And in this passage, in verse 18, it talks about Pharaoh, an individual man in the Old Testament. And it says here that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. When we read that, it seems really unjust. How could God harden someone's heart? 
But if we go back to the original story in the book of Exodus, it shows us that God gave him opportunity after opportunity to change, but he continually hardened his own heart. And as he hardened his own heart, God allowed it to remain hardened. I think Pharaoh in some ways reflects a picture of humanity. God has been so good to us. He's gracious and kind in so many ways, but in return, we have hardened our hearts towards God and none of us have pursued him. And so you've got God and you've got us. God creates us. He gives us life. He is compassionate and kind towards us. But from the second we're born, we're predisposed to sin. We reject him. We disobey him. We sin against this good and holy God. We have hardened our hearts, even though God has revealed himself in so many gracious ways through creation, common grace, and most importantly, through his word. And so if our hearts remain hardened towards God, then we are completely responsible for that. God doesn't owe us anything and we've rejected him. And because we sin, a punishment is deserved. And Romans 3.23 tells us what that punishment is. It says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And so we often judge God's character based on how we see our character. But if we truly understand our character from Scripture, we'll soon understand that God is absolutely just in his judgment on our sinful lives. It's what we deserve. God doesn't owe us anything. And so if God acted purely in justice, he would allow our hearts to remain hardened and he would simply judge us based on our sin and rebellion against him. Not one of us would ever come to know him and that would be right and that would be just and that would be fair based on our lives. But scripture teaches, that's the bad news, but scripture teaches the good news that God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. And in his sovereignty and by his spirit, he chooses to pursue us. Not because we deserve it, but because he's wonderful and gracious and kind. And when we respond by faith, we show ourselves to be the elect. But we can't even boast about that and say, well, it's my faith that saved me. Because even faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 tells us, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God. And so none of us can boast in our salvation apart from Christ because it's 100% the work of God in our lives. So when we consider God's character and our character, many people are shocked by the judgment of God. How could God judge us? But when we consider our character, it makes sense. God is holy and right and just. And the same people who would say, how could God be a God of justice like that, would be the same people who would kick up a fuss when a judge doesn't punish someone for a horrendous crime. God's holy and righteous. We are not. And so it is only natural that we would be judged for our sin. The punishment of our sin is death. We shouldn't be shocked by the judgment of God. What we should be shocked by is the mercy of God. That's what should shock us, that that we've actually walked away from God. We don't want anything to do with him. We've completely rebelled against him. We haven't sought him out at all, and yet by his mercy, he pursues us and saved us. We should be shocked by the mercy of God that he would choose a bunch of people that have completely rejected him. That realisation should bring us to our knees in praise of how incredible God is. And I think this is what it says in verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects, you and me, of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? 
This is a wonderful truth that many of us have been saved, although none of us deserve it. That's why baptisms are a wonderful occasion. These three guys stand before you today to declare the grace of God in his saving activity in their lives. And so I encourage you this morning, as I finish up, to come to your own stance on predestination. But as you consider it from Scripture, remember your own character. Meditate on the sovereignty of God. Remember the character of God. And you'll come to love him in an even deeper way. A God who is loving and just and kind in all of his ways. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.